Hey everybody, so I wanted to show you Zoe this time because this is going to be her last appearance. She found a new mommy today. Yep, she'll be going to it for her forever home, uh, either this Saturday or next Saturday, but it'll be before our next show. So, yay for Zoe. Yay for Zoe. Yay for forever home for a black kitty. Yep. Now, unfortunately, she won't be able to stay in here for the show because she still does not get along with the boys. Yeah. Yeah. But we want you all to say bye-bye, Zoe, before if, she if went we, off. If you can see her. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, and I, Chris and I wore black tonight. So, yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Zoe. <laughs> She's like, I want to go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I was sleeping. <laughs> she was nice and cozy and sleeping. But, yeah, so Chris and I are going to be uh, bringing you some haunted houses tonight. But before we do that, let's go ahead and talk things you can come out and do with us that are spooky. Of course, you can come out to our, our normal four tours, Phantoms of Franklin, Churchill Chillers, Haunted Capitol Hill, and the Shadows of Shaco. But remember, next month we're bringing you a brand-new tour uh, that's a partnership with the John Marshall House. Uh, and so you're going to be able to get a 30-minute indoor tour with the John Marshall Docents and a ghost tour of everything that they have that goes uh, bump in the day and the night. And then we're going to take you around Corded, which is John Marshall's neighborhood, and uh, talk to you about four other haunted locations in that neighborhood. Uh, so if you're interested in coming out for that special event that's going to be on November 20th, uh, we have tours at 7 and at 8 o'clock. And these are very limited. We're only able to have 12 people per tour because of the restrictions that the John Marshall House has. So definitely get your tickets for that. Yeah. So we got that. Um, another event that we got coming up that tickets are not quite for sale yet, but they will be soon. We are going to be starting a little pub hop in December. Woohoo! Drinking and ghosts. Drinks and ghosts, yeah. So we'll be meeting up inside uh, Penny Lane Pub over there at uh, Franklin and street uh, to go ahead share some stories over a pint in there and then there's going to be a, kind of an, an abbreviated outdoor walking tour um, featuring mostly our stories from the Phantoms of Franklin tour as we work our way over to Triple Cross Brewing where we will uh, pop in for a second round um, and uh, well there won't be storytelling in Triple Cross. Uh, it's a time to ask questions yep. to drink. Yep. And we, we love being able to chat up all the paranormal and history stuff and just about anything else you want to talk about and ask, you know, how did we get into this and stuff like that because those are stories. Yes, those are stories. Those are stories. Yes. And one final thing, another reminder for everybody that we have a Haunted Key West in December of 2022. So that is uh, going to be here before we know it, honestly. Yeah, it is. Chris and I are doing some preliminary work this December, but it really will be here before we know it. Yep. So if that's something you want to check out, maybe book some reservations, you can uh, yeah. check out the uh, website for that, which is hauntofkeywest.com. You can go there, check it out, and, uh, yeah, put down the deposit if you want to join us for that trip, which is going to be a lot of fun and fun mm-hmm. uh, down there December of next year. Yeah. And spooky ghosts, too. And spooky ghosts. And, of course, as Beth was mentioning before, all our regular tours that we are going to keep on running as well because spooky stuff. Spooky stuff year-round. That's our name of our company. So come on. Uh, All right. So we're going to talk about some haunted houses. Um, There was a lot to choose from, you can imagine. Uh, I've got a climbing kitten. I'm going to let you start. We've got a wide variety of stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight. And this first one is uh, actually kind of a really fun one. It's, uh, <laughs> it is uh, why we have the Ghostbusters clause 
yeah. today. Yeah. So, so this is a legally deemed haunted house. Yes. And uh, the, part, the one that set the precedent here uh, in, the, uh, in the United States, although um, it's not exactly a precedent nationwide. Yeah. So, anyways. I digress, or kind of getting a little ahead of myself. Chris, <laughs> that's some editing me. Yeah. <laughs> now, Nyack, New York, is a tiny little upscale community tucked away in the Hudson Valley, not too far from New York City. While it would likely prefer to be known for its charming atmosphere, there is one home here that has earned the town some international attention. The home at one LaVita place had a little fairly unremarkable history to it. The beautiful Victorian was built sometime around 1900, and it was used throughout the years as both a boarding house and a family residence. In the early 1960s, George and Helen Ackley purchased the home, by, which by this point was a fixer-upper in need of some serious love. Restoring and updating the architectural gem, they removed their family into the home, not realizing what was awaiting them inside. They didn't realize that their home already had a reputation in the community and that the neighborhood children would whisper amongst themselves about the haunts that resided there. The rumors did eventually get their way back to the Ackley family, and shortly thereafter they found that there might be more to the tales than just whispers. Over the years, the family most notably, Helen, experienced bizarre poltergeist activity. Helen began to tell neighbors of the unusual events that were occurring in the house, but many dismissed the tales as little more than childish pranks. It wasn't until years later when a young and perfectly healthy house guest came over to the Ackley's home for dinner that people in the area began to question what was really going on in the house. Uh, the guest came over, clashed to the floor, and died immediately of a brain aneurysm. Now, while brain aneurysms are not necessarily paranormal in nature, the event shocked the community and the whispers about the Victorian home were no longer limited to the children in the area. While the sudden passing of a perfectly healthy person in the house was by far the most disturbing, uh, disturbingly bizarre event, the family had to deal with plenty of other unsettling activities, many on a daily basis. The most common thing to happen in the house was that the spirit presence would wake family members by violently shaking their beds. While it may sound like the most unpleasant way possible to be woken from your slumber, the family eventually learned to live with the unexplainable activities in their home. So how do you live with something like that? Well, the family seemed to come to an understanding with the presence in their home. As long as they were polite and not overly demanding, the family members could occasionally ask for a pass on the bed shaking. If it was a holiday and the family had a chance to sleep in, they would simply ask for a chance to get a little extra sleep before going to bed. On those occasions, the presence would leave their bed alone. The presence was also polite to the family members as well, presenting them with gifts from out of nowhere. Babies were given baby rings that disappeared as quickly as they appeared, and other gifts included silver tongs and plenty of coins. The paranormal detente ultimately allowed the family to live happily and peacefully with the unseen residents of the home. In fact, Helen was so proud of her ghosts that she made no attempt to hide them. The haunted house was mentioned several times in the local paper, and Reader's Digest also did a story on the home's ethereal residence titled Our Haunted House on the Hudson. According to the family, they believed that there were either two or three spirits that shared the home with them. The spirits were said to be from the era of the American Revolution, leaving random guests for the children randomly throughout the house. 
slamming doors and making their presence known through, uh, through the sounds of their footsteps. The house was so well known that it even became a stop on a local ghost tour. When property values declined and taxes increased in the late 1980s, Helen decided to sell the home and move to a warmer climate. Luckily, even though the market was soft, she did eventually find a buyer, Mr. Jeffrey Stambowski and his wife, Patrice, of New York City. They agreed to an asking price of $650,000. The papers were signed, and a down payment of $32,000 was paid. And then the Stamboskis began to hear the stories about the house being haunted. Although a skeptic, Stamboski said the rumors made his wife nervous and that the thought of ghost hunters and curiosity seekers trapezing through the property did not interest them. They tried to back out of the deal, but Helen refused to return the down payment. In retaliation, a civil suit was filed against her and her real estate company, Ellis Realty. Known formally as Stamboski versus Ackley, the unusual court case is now more commonly referred to as the Ghostbusters ruling. The Stamboskis argued that it was their right to back out on the offer for the house, never being made aware of the chilling history that surrounded it. In the first case held, the judge ruled that the Ackley family was not at fault for making the home's haunted history known to the buyers. It was deemed caveat emptor, 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 or simply buyer beware, if you will. The house was sold as is, and therefore the Stamboskis were not entitled to anything for breaking the contract. The Stamboskis ended up appealing the first ruling, going on to win the second trial. It was ruled in their favor on July 18, 1991. Since Helen did publicize the hauntings, the house, for the purposes of this case, was deemed legally haunted and it was ruled that this fact should have been disclosed to potential buyers. During the second trial, the judge even went as far as to quote the Ghostbusters movie, asking, who are you going to call, when you discover that your house is filled with paranormal activity. Today, the Ghostbusters ruling is a case that is frequently taught in law classes and brought up during other court cases because of how bizarre the entire situation was. While the legal ruling effectively made the disclosure of paranormal activity mandatory as part, of par uh, as part of property transactions in New York State, the same cannot be said for every state in the country, including Virginia. So mm -hmm. does not apply here. So if you are shopping for real estate and would prefer to not have a brush with the paranormal, do your research, because in many places the law still states buyer aware. That was a fun one. I like that story. And it's a gorgeous house. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, do you have a chance to go check out the pictures? Fantastic. <laughs> and apparently you Yuna know. wants to say hello. Wants to block everybody. Hi. Oh, I got to catch up on that. On some comments, there's I, a lot I, of highs. I still do not have the video up on the screen yet. Oh. Apologies, everybody. Silly. My bad. Yeah, I, my bad. Well, he was reading because I was catching kittens and, and entertaining them. Oh, wow. Yes. So, hello, Glenn. Good to see you. Mm -hmm. And, oh. Christina Johnson from Western New York. We're from, I'm from Western New York. I grew up in Rochester. I'm from Saratoga Springs originally. Only there for a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. But then Round Lake. We still get back up to New York yeah, every year. Yes. And Alex, yep, love Penny Lane. We, yeah, <laughs> surviving wild and crazy October, I see. Yes. Halfway through and I'm still a zombie. Yeah. Haven't made it to vampire mode yet. A little more than halfway. Oh, 
Right. Oh, speaking of Rochester, New York, Ronnie Lynn Steinberg. Hey. Hi from Rochester, New York. Hi from hometown. And uh, oh, we got our elves in here. Elves and yes. our guide. Hello. Josh Miller from RVA. All right. There's a couple people I'm, I'm not recognizing. I yeah. love this. Thank you for coming out. Yeah. Mayville, New York. Awesome. Cool. I'm glad you could all join us tonight. Yeah. So good, glad to see some new people here, and of course, good to see our old friends as well. Yeah. So we're going to actually jump down to Kansas, uh, to Atchison, Kansas, and this is the Sally House. Uh, so in Atchison, Kansas is a very small but very notable city along the Missouri River, which over the years has earned a reputation as an industrious community with notable roles in the railroad and steel industries. It will also be the hometown of aviator Amelia Earhart, and people flock to the annual Amelia Earhart Festival that is held there every July. One other thing that draws people to this community, though, are the spirits that are said to linger here. And if one spooky structure stands out amongst the rest, it is the Sally House. From the outside, the Sally House is fairly unremarkable. It's a two-story brick home painted white. You'll usually find some peeling patches in need of a touch-up. The roof has several peaks and jut-outs that give it just a little architectural flair, and it offsets the simple asphalt shingles. There's also a small front porch and other cozy-looking nooks throughout the home. But what has happened inside the house many years ago is what made the Sally House what it is now. Reports state that a male doctor used to live in the home and used the front of the home for patients while his family lived upstairs. One night, mother and her daughter, Sally, showed up urgently needing help. Little Sally was having extreme stomach pain and couldn't be stopped. The doctor reacted quickly to do what Thank you. 
of whispering things in the ears of visitors. Uh, more disturbing note, many young women have reported hearing the spirit of Dr. John Gibbons whisper in their ears. They say he sometimes grabs and grubs them. I don't care for frisky goes. The spirit of an extravagant manner was purchased by Dr. John and Jesse Gibbons in 1899. Dr. John was a well-known accredited doctor in town, but his home was full of tragedy. Dr. Gibbons saw patients in his home office on the first floor of the estate. The Gibbons were known for adopting orphan children and accepting them into their homes as their own. Around Christmas Day of 1912, Rachel Gibbons, the adopted daughter of John and Jesse, decided that they decided to sneak downstairs, take a peek at the presents waiting for her under the tree. And in the process, she wound up knocking over an open flame, causing a fire to break out. While the blaze was quickly handled, Rachel had been badly burned and succumbed to her injuries just two days later in the upstairs bedroom. They say that you can sometimes see her running around the house to this day. Rachel is one of the children believed to throw jacks in the home or roll balls in the empty rooms or down the hall. Many visitors have formed uh, almost a love affair with the spirit of this little girl who died so tragically. Burn marks from that awful day actually still remain on a pocket door between the parlor and the dining room. A group of women visiting the home made a special effort to reach out, reach, reach out to Rachel. Should have done my tongue twister warm up. They brought her a present, a doll, which they left in the second floor bedroom where Rachel had died. They made themselves at home and began to try to communicate with the little lost soul. As they called out to the 10-year-old, the women heard something bounce down the stairs. On the landing at the bottom of the stairs, they saw the doll they had brought for Rachel. It was singed and freshly smelled burnt. The Rachel's death was tragic and unfortunate family deaths do not stop there. The Gibbons' 10-month-old infant daughter, Elizabeth, died an unusual death in the master bedroom. The cause of her death is unknown. Jesse Gibbons later fell ill in the home and suffered terribly from double pneumonia, and she passed away in the same room as the infant daughter. Some guests slept sleep in Jesse's master bedroom report waking in the middle of the night to labored breathing and coughing. The most common paranormal activity has been reported in the master bedroom is the closet doorknob that will frequently jiggle and sometimes stop, and the closet door will pop open. These are only some of the reported haunted activities when guests spend the night at Whistler's State. Those who are brave enough to sleep on the third bedroom report waking from a horrible nightmare that could sometimes hear people attempting to open their bedroom door in the middle of the night. Guests claim to see beds and couches visibly shaking, and it's also been reported numerous times a shadow lurks throughout the house that can most commonly be found in the office. The Gibbons family story is very interesting, however, it is not deep. Many other families that lived in the Whisper State over the years experienced a similar trauma and death. A gentleman who lived in the estate in the 60s died upstairs in the, in the bathroom. Later, another young boy died uh, from mysteriously falling down the front staircase. Whisper's estate was recently renovated, and during the restoration, strange activity, of course, was reported. Again, many disembodied voices were heard, uh, especially being whispered right into your ear. Those looking to chase the spirits are welcome to go and book themselves an overnight stay, but you should know that the rooms aren't typical. Rather, Van Rainier, the owner, encourages visitors to bring a sticky bag 
night out on watch for the spooky happening. For his part, Renan refuses to stay in the house by himself. He's experienced very paranormal activity in the home, but for him, the footsteps are what tend to leave him the most on age. He says when you hear the footsteps, you pray that they're the child's footsteps. They're a little pitter-patter of feet, maybe about 70 to 80 pounds. However, he gets a tingling just talking about it. There's another set of footsteps that happens in the house now, and that's more like a loud, heavy something and very menacing. So if you're up for a very paranormal child challenge, if you go, let us know because we want to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> so you go with the menacing heavy footsteps or with the creepy children footsteps because creepy children. Yeah. I don't like either. Nah. Creepy children. Ah. Get to take you to one of our most favorite places. Now we have, we have a lot of favorite places. We, we, we like to travel. We do like to travel, but this one, uh, this one's within driving distance. Easy drive, uh, and it's uh, down just to the south of us, Savannah, Georgia. Now to say that Savannah is haunted is like saying that water is wet. Savannah has so many ghosts, so many ghost stories, so many dead pits full of disease and war soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. Virtually every street in Savannah has a paranormal tale, but for the sake of this evening, we're going to focus on the Hampton Lillibridge house. We'll get to the others sometime. And I know we've visited Savannah on some of our other shows before. Yeah. So we'll There's just so much to tell about Savannah. Never run out of material for Savannah. But anyway, Hampton Lillibridge house tonight, a new one. So from the outside, it is a seemingly normal, quiet, private residence. But its walls hold some chilling tales, including that of an exorcism that failed. Located deep in the historical district, a short walk from Oogleford Park Square, excuse me, on East St. Julian Street, the Hampton Lillibridge House has seen much suffering and death. It is a distinctive and elegant house, two and a half stories, with a mansard roof and wide shiplap siding. It was built in 1796 by its namesake, Hampton Lillibridge, originally a resident of Rhode Island. The design matched his New England origins, even though it was built down in Georgia. His widow sold the house after Hampton Lillibridge died. Its new owner converted it to a boarding house, and in its new function, it saw at least one tragedy, a troubled sailor ashore for a short break, committed suicide by hanging himself in one of the guest rooms. The suicide marred the reputation of the boarding house and marks the property as a place of ill repute in general. The boarding house eventually closed her business and for many years no one lived in the home. In 1963, Jim Williams, the inspiration for the main character in John Burnett, Burnett, you know, The guy who wrote Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, I'm sorry I'm butchering your name. I know you're infinitely more famous than I am, and I should not be butchering your name. So anyways, this guy, the inspiration for that main character wind up buying the house. Now, the events that occurred after his purchase of the property mirror his own life story. The house has become a legendary property in the city. It's story shifting with the events that keep happening in the house. What has remained consistent, though, is its intense level of haunting that continues here. An esteemed antique dealer and architectural restorationist, Williams took much pleasure in restoring the Lillibridge house to its former splendor. 
a common story about the home recounts that in the process of moving the house, the whole house on blocks and wheels just a few blocks down the road, part of the roof collapsed, crushing one of Williams's anonymous laborers who died of his injuries. The troubles didn't end with the property's successful transplantation. Rather, moving the house may have upset some of the spirits that seemed to reside there. John Williams' construction crew experienced more misfortune almost immediately. They felt chilling, tingling sensations on the back of their necks. At times, the sound of furniture being moved around could be heard from distant rooms. They heard laughter, voices, and footsteps seemingly from nowhere. Tools and construction equipment were subject to malfunctions, inexplicable breakage, and moving of their own accord. Building materials were also inexplicably moved or just disappeared completely. The disturbances caused many members of the crew to quit the ambitious project. Reports of the paranormal incident soon spread, and eventually a local news crew heard about the hauntings and decided to investigate. Late one evening, the news crew, camera at the ready, arrived at the house and went inside. They were greeted by a piece of construction material flying at them. Despite all of these issues, a few of the workers on the restoration team remained with Williams' project. One worker was rewarded for his commitment with his own personal confrontation with a very aggressive spirit. The laborer heard a loud and sudden noise and went upstairs to the upper stories to investigate what had happened. He didn't think anyone was up there, so expecting to see something, uh, he just simply expected to see something had fallen to the floor. When the laborer didn't return to his workmates for some time, they grew concerned. A pair went upstairs to see what was delaying him. They found their co-worker quickly by following his terrified whimpers. He was lying face down on the wooden floor, scraping at the bare wood floor with his nails. He was terrified. After comforting him and reassuring him, they asked what had happened. The laborer explained that he'd walked into the room looking for the noise and instantly felt as though he'd been thrown into ice-cold water. He said he felt like he was losing control over his body. It was almost as if he was possessed. In his panic, he reflexively drops to the floor, desperately trying to stop the mysterious force from dragging him towards a chimney shaft that was open. With a precipitous three-story drop below, if the force had succeeded, the man would have plunged three stories. The fall likely would have killed him. While telling his colleagues what had happened, the man casually suggested conducting an exorcism. As he uttered the word exorcism, a loud female scream echoed through the room, even though they were quite alone in the room. As well as hearing voices, the builders working on the restoration also spotted apparitions. One specter seen often was described as a tall man dressed in black. The crew reported seeing the apparition watching them from a third floor window. They said he wore a black suit and a light-colored tie and stood by the window, perhaps disapproving of their role in uprooting his place of residence. Others saw the ghosts during the time of Don Williams, that Don Williams owned the house. Some reported seeing a middle-aged man with gray hair wearing a silver robe. The people who lived next door complained of noises like a party was happening, hearing singing and dancing, despite the house being empty at the time. Some neighbors even saw people dancing on the third floor, again, all while the place was vacant. The house had no reported electrical issues, yet lights were often seen flickering on and off, seemingly at random. Now, Williams was not a big believer in the supernatural and rejected the idea that his house was possessed. He did, however, reveal a telling detail that could be the key to it all. 
The renovations had unearthed a mysterious crypt beneath the new house's location. During the restoration of the house at its new location, the crew had to dig up the house's foundation to properly set the structure. In their excavation, they unearthed an ancient crypt below the level of the basement foundations. That most likely dated from a pre-colonial period. Consultants indicated there was likely of Native American origin, and the walls of the crypt were built with rough lime and crushed oyster shells. Williams was notified of their findings, but apparently not at the property at the time. It's not clear what happened to the crypt, as there is no mention of moving it or reinterment in accounts from Williams' period. It seems like the crypt was simply buried underneath the house. Even after hearing about the many paranormal events in the newly renovated property, Williams moved into the Hampton Little Birch House, and the spirits, in their own way, immediately welcomed him home. In the middle of the night, the grating sound of footsteps woke him several times. Williams likened the sound to, be, to glass being crushed underfoot. Williams also witnessed the appearance of a shadowy figure who approached him before suddenly disappearing. Once, Williams, who was probably both intrigued and more than a little annoyed at the constant presence, attempted to pursue one of the spirits. He wrote about chasing it down a hallway until a door abruptly slammed in his face. When he attempted to open the door, it was somehow locked. With the resident spirits affecting his sleep and making life difficult for Williams, he decided to try and do something about the occupation. He went to see an Episcopal bishop from a nearby church, Reverend Albert Rett Stewart. On December 7, 1963, the bishop himself conducted a lengthy exorcism of the restored Santa Bulliburch house. He conducted a ceremonial blessing at the time. He demanded that the evil spirits leave and rest in peace. His efforts were seemingly not in vain. The exorcism had succeeded for less than a week. A few days later, the disturbances resumed. Now to be dissuaded, Williams is next invited a series of paranormal investigators psychics, and other organizations to have a look at the property and see if they could do anything about the spooky residents. They all agreed that paranormal activity has occurred within the house, but no one was able to offer any ideas as to how to rid the house of its unwanted guests. John or Jim Williams eventually sold the Hampton Lillibridge house, and it still has a haunted reputation. That said, the Hampton Lillibridge house is still a private residence. As such, it is not open to the public for visits or tours. The house was last sold in 2019, only for $1.5 million. Mm -hmm. Only a small price to pay for this beautifully terrifying piece of history. Let's go see if we can find it just to walk by it next time. Yeah. St. Julian Street, right off of Wolfer Square. Only two blocks away from where we were last time. Yep. Okay. Not that we haven't walked every corner of that city. Yeah. <laughs> you get your steps in in Savannah. Oh, yeah. With alcohol. With alcohol, yes. Cheers. You can walk outside with Cheers. 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 By the way, we are enjoying some uh, um, spike cider. Spike cider with the uh, brandy. Mm. Brandy I'm spike cider. Hmm? I went a little heavy. Yeah, you poured a little heavy. Oh, no. Medicinal this time of year. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're going to cut over to Illinois and McHenry County to the George Stickney House. Now, going to McHenry County, Illinois, we find the George Stickney House, a home with a bizarre and certainly a haunted past. 
My home was originally built with new, sharp corners. Thanks to George Stickney's belief that it would help spirits flow through the home and not get smashed. Well, that didn't really work out all that well. No. No. Just saying. Didn't help that they weren't quite on the same page with the people that actually built it. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, you are. So George and his wife Sylvia built the home in 1836. Both husband and wife were staunch believers in spiritualism, which roughly meant that they thought the spirits not only could but wanted to speak with them, wanted to speak with and through them. This belief put them on the fringe of society. So the Sixties built their dream home in Illinois wilderness, far from the prying eyes. Their mansion would be two stories tall with the living and domestic quarters on the first floor, the grand ballroom taking up the entirety of the second. In the building of the structure, they made sure that they were to be new sharp corners and with every angle rounded out. This was mostly done in an effort to allow the spirits to travel unhindered through the house as corners have often been thought to hide ghosts. The couple held lavish seances in the large second floor ballroom inviting guests from all over to come and commune with the dead. Their fixation on the talking with the spirits was said to be stemmed from the tragic fate of their children, three of ten surviving to adulthood. After the sickness left the house, a number of spirit supernatural tales sprang up around the mansion, the most prevalent which involved the death of George himself. Legend has it that George Stickney found or found slumped in a corner of his home that had accidentally been built at a 90-degree angle. The look of horror cemented on his face. It's not completely certain how this one angle wound up in the original construction. Perhaps the architect did it, did it out of some structural necessity. Or maybe the architect simply thought that the Stickneys wouldn't notice. It seems at least George took notice. After the death of her husband, says it's Sylvia Stickney lived in the house and her fame as a spiritual medium grew. Upstairs, the ballroom played host to people from far and wide who attended her seances and contacted ghosts of their deceased loved ones. Sylvia also claimed to stay in contact with her unlucky husband and her deceased children. Time passed, and despite the seances and mysterious death of George Stickney, the house never really gained a bad reputation until the 1970s. It had always, always been considered a strange and unusual place connected to the spirit world, but it was never thought to be a bad one until one man named Roderick Smith moved in. He lived in the house for several years. When he moved out, he began to claim that he often heard strange noises in the place. He also added that his dogs were never comfortable there. This led him to believe that something was not right with the property. Smith's research led him to reveal that the house had become tainted by a group of devil worshippers who lived in it during the 1960s. He was convinced that their black magic rituals conjured up something unpleasant that now inhabited the house. Later, it turned out that the so-called devil worshippers were actually a group of stoned-out hippies <laughs> who painted the rooms in dark colors, built open fires on the floors of the house. And when they departed, they spray-painted messages and drug paraphernalia uh, spread out in their wake. While it's unlikely they worshipped the devil, Smith was sure that they had changed the atmosphere of the mansion. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, energy is energy. 
I'll leave it at that. <laughs> he was certainly up to, uh, he was certainly no help in getting the house uh, sold, but neither was one of the real estate listings that came after his departure. A local antique dealer would claim that he saw a real estate ad for the place in which a woman in a wedding gown could be seen pulling aside a curtain and peering out. The photographer who took the picture said no one was in the house at the time. He also stated that he had seen no one in the window when he was snapping the photos at the house. Ghostly sightings or not, the house eventually sold, and the next owners claimed to experience nothing unusual in the place. They stayed on for several years, but moved out when their plans to restore the mansion didn't pan out. Their occupancy leaves nothing to suggest that they were bothered by ghosts, but perhaps their care for the home lets the spirit rest. The home has since gone through a major transition, though some think the resident spirits do not approve. Today, the building houses the Bull Valley Government and Police Force. The only remnants of the original rounded architecture on the outside of the building where the corners are still gentle slopes and the windows are arched. Similarly, spirits can get it can now get in and they just can't get out. The building is rife with bizarre activity, including strange footsteps, objects moving on their own, shouts coming from thin air, and it's been enough to drive away some of the government workers and a few officers have also decided to turn in their badge seemingly as a result of those experiences within the structure. Not a good idea to drive your police officers away. Yeah. You want them there when you need them. And I have a vision who's decided he needs to be on that. He does. He's been playing by me this entire time. That is candy cane. Yep. Well, they're a little, little ahead of the season, but... But it's his favorite toy up here right now. There's Mr. Vincent. Don't bite. Don't bite. I am not a shoe bug. He's spicy now. He's always spicy. Huh? Uh-oh. Not right now, obviously. That would be a whole different type of horror show. <laughs> there would be a bloodletting. <laughs> there probably will be a bloodletting. That does not mean bite my knuckles, sir. <laughs> okay. Anyways, we are going to be staying in Illinois for the next story. No, no, not jumping too far here. And we're going to slide over the town to the town of Ashmore. Now, this is home to the aptly named Ashmore Estate. The structure that houses Ashmore Estate uh, was originally built in 1916 as an almshouse, part of the Coles County Poor Farm. Now, to provide a little bit of clarity, a poor farm wasn't strictly a place for the poor and destitute, but often also served as part of a prison farm. Residents and inmates alike at these facilities often found themselves there as a found themselves there as a slightly better alternative than living on the streets. Accommodations were minimalistic, rules were strict, and you were expected to earn your keep. They literally grew and took, you know, provided all their own food. So self-sustaining. Pretty much self-sustaining. That was the idea, at least. Now, going back a little further, uh, in 1870, the Coles County purchased 250 acres for the purpose of building a new poor farm to replace an existing facility that was in need of retirement. The initial superintendent or overseer of the poor of the county farm was Albert D. Hawkins, who had moved to Coles County in 1841. 
As inmates somewhat sometimes died at the farm, the county maintained a small cemetery for their burials north of the grounds. In 1879, Joshua Ricketts, superintendent of the county farm at that time, recorded a total of 32 deaths amongst the estimated—excuse me—amongst the estimated 250 inmates who had stayed at the farm between 1870 and 1879. Another pauper cemetery established a few years later is visible south of Route 16. It is believed to contain the graves of between 60 and 100 people. The Board of State Commissioners of Public Charities visited the poor farm in 1902 to assess the facility. They reported that the heating is by stove and is sufficient. There is no regular system of ventilation, but plenty of fresh air is easily obtained. There is no plumbing. There is no fire protection. As for the condition of the mentally ill at the farm, they wrote, there is no special provision for the insane. None are locked up or in restraint. By 1911, however, the Auxiliary Committee of the State Board of Charities condemned the Alms House for its vermin-infected walls, rough floors, small windows, and improper ventilation. It was reported that flies swarmed everywhere and were especially noticeable on the poor food prepared for dinner. In January of 1915, the Alms House Committee received bids for the construction of a new fireproof building at the location. The building contract for the new Alms House was awarded and the cornerstone was laid on May 17, 1916. A full-time caretaker and his family were allowed to live in the Alms House or in a white farmhouse that used to be on the property. Nancy Swinford, the daughter of Leo Roy and Laura Andrews Swinford, lived at the home for eight years during the 1940s and 1950s. In a 2009 interview with the Times Courier, Swinford said of the poor farm, it certainly did a lot of people a lot of good. They were warm and had good food on the table, and they loved working and earning their keep. They weren't moochers. They mostly grew their own food, did their own butchering, and smoked the meat. They smoked their own bacon and ham in the smokehouse. They killed and dressed all of their own chickens and made their own butter. Shortly after the almshouse closed, the building and related grounds were purchased and renamed by Ashmore Estates, Incorporated for use as a private care facility for people with mental health and other disabilities. Uh, in October of 1964, after five years in operation, the psychiatric hospital closed down because of debt. The institution reopened in 1965, but changed its focus from a private facility to one that accepted patients from a state mental institution. These were trying to break up the large asylums of the time. And by 1968, the shelter care facility housed 49 residents. Now, in July of 1976, the facility changed hands and a modern addition added space and upgraded systems throughout. But a decade later, in 1986, financial difficulties forced Ashmore Estates to close their doors. Despite multiple attempts to reopen or repurpose the building, it would stand abandoned and vacant for 20 years. In August of 2006, the building was purchased by Scott Kelly and his wife. The building was a wreck with broken windows and debris throughout. It took weeks for the Kellys to clear the space and to fund their plans. But, uh, and to fund their ultimate plan, they offered flashlight tours of the interior. Locals and self-styled paranormal investigators quickly lined up to get a look inside. The Kellys' plan came to fruition when they opened their commercial haunted house on October 13, 2006. 
In the off-season, Scott offered overnight stays in the building under a program called A Night of Insanity. He featured speakers, movies, and various special guests. Unfortunately for the Kellys, a severe storm struck the area in January, uh, January 2013, and Ashmore State suffered considerable damage. Its roof was blown off, and the supporting gables were destroyed. Director Dan Henson of the Coles County Emergency Management Agency said that the building appeared to be damaged beyond repair. The Kellys' home, adjacent to the property, escaped largely unscathed. McKellie sold the building at auction in April of 2013, and the property eventually fell into the hands of Robin and Norma Carey. Now, the Careys replaced the roof, installed bathrooms, a shower, and a kitchenette, and made other renovations to the building for safety and structural preservation. Aided by volunteers, the Careys intended to preserve the building as a historical structure and as a site for paranormal investigation. Throughout all the years, many have been said to have had ghostly encounters at Ashmore State. Immediately after the healthcare facility closed, whispers started the world about the dark and unexplained activities that seemed to permeate the structure. This drew the attention of the public eye, particularly the paranormal experts and a very curious public. Some of the occurrences reported include lingering smells, ominous black mists, and tall shadows. Sounds that cannot be explained record, uh, recorded on video and audio equipment and thermal images. It was reportedly haunted by many ghosts, including Elva Skinner, a young woman who died in a fire in the former Alms House over a century ago. Others say they've heard the disembodied voices, uh, felt hot and cold spots, and even seen full-bodied apparitions. Visitors' experiences differ, but all agree on one thing. This building is massively haunted. Adding fuel to the rumors, some believe that the building was used as a meeting place for a satanic cult during its vacant years. Why is it always a satanic cult? Annual place. Place. Extra hot. Isn't that Zoe? Hmm? Isn't that Zoe? There's the spicy little nugget. Extended to the ghost stories, 
that he would share with his children and family, including his niece and ward, the Faulkner Wells. Three tales that were recounted in the book Ghosts of Roanoke, a haunting and heartbreaking story of Judith, the chilling tale of the werewolf, and the macabre story of the hound. Roanoke was Faulkner's primary residence until he passed away in 1962 at the age of 64 due to complications from an injury he suffered after falling off his horse. He was laid to rest at nearby Oxford, Oxford Memorial Cemetery. The house was largely preserved as Faulkner left it by his daughter, Jill. It was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1968, and in 1972, Jill sold the house to the University of Mississippi. The university maintains the home in order to promote Faulkner's literary heritage. After its most recent renovations, some of which were funded by part-time Oxford resident Old Miss Law School alums, John Gershom, uh, Roanoke was rededicated on May 1st of 2005. The home is open for tours and tradition calls for visitors to leave an offering of whiskey for the resident ghost of Mr. Faulkner. The expansion is certainly a hotbed for supernatural. The more popular story that surrounds is Judith Chagas, the only daughter of the home's original owner, Colonel Robert Chagas. She reportedly threw herself off the bedroom balcony because of a lost love. Another rendition of the story, as told by Faulkner to his friends and his fellows, uh, was that Judith climbed out of her window and used a rope ladder to an attempt to elope with a Yankee soldier. In doing so, she lost her balance and plunged to her death upon a brick sidewalk. There are many stories about Judith's end of her mortal life, so two things are certain. The first is that her devastated father buried her under a magnolia tree on the property. The second is her present lingers on the property and has been the most well-documented and cited specter within the house. Although Judith's spirit is most commonly reported to lurk in this mansion, there have been reports of Faulkner himself as a lingering spirit. Dr. Phantom has been seen writing on the walls of his office, according to legend, and he roams the ground, scaring off the University of Mississippi students who venture near his house at night. Temptation alert. Visiting Rowan Oak after dark is strictly prohibited. According to the museum spokesman, no matter your belief in the paranormal, their security guards are much scarier than any ghost. <laughs> but we urge you, respect when you're planning a journey to this property and go during daylight hours like you're supposed to. And this goes for anywhere that you're thinking about doing paranormal investigation. Get permission Get first. permission first. Always, always, always get, get it permission. Right in. Yes. So that was our last two? That was the last one for tonight. Yes, yeah. We, we ran a, a, little, a little short tonight. Yeah. It's been, it's been busy. Even though we have three weeks for this one, it's been busy. And I still have no idea what we're doing in another three weeks. Yes, so that would be totally in a rush. And we're um, another three-week break. But November 8th is going to be our next one, uh, so we hope to see you then. And then Chris and I will hopefully regain our human life forms and not zombie. Yeah, so we, we still got, 
you know, uh, just under two weeks left in October. Mm -hmm. So you have time to join us in this spookiest of seasons. Yeah. Uh, and actually, if you want to join one of our um, paranormal colleagues uh, up at Hammer Tavern, they're having a ghost walk. So Chris is actually going to be one of the guys. Yep, that will be the, uh, this coming Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, the 24th, 25th, and 26th. So you can uh, join me up there, and uh, we'll do a little ghost walk at night. And this is a uh, even the hmm, excuse me, I am sorry. Even though they uh, uh, offer monthly ghost tours up there, anyways, this one's a little extra special because I'm there. No, I because I, they have actually actors. They have actors that are going to be recanting or re, re, um, retelling. Retelling. Thank you. Recanting now. Retelling their stories. So. Uh, I will be leading you around and giving you some high-level, um, you know, be one of the people there. Historical you know, notes. Historical notes and stuff like that. But then you'll actually have the uh, some actors there sharing the ghost stories. And very entertaining. I got to participate for the first time last year. Had a lot of fun. And, uh, they yeah, wanted me back. They wanted me back. They, well, I'm a belt in charge here in Richmond. He gets to go up there and play. Yeah. I'll be doing some work. Be working, be working here, be working there, be working, 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 working everywhere. Yes, all across town, yeah. all across the greater Richmond area, and and who knows, and beyond. But yeah, so we uh, got a lot going on. You can come on up for that. There's a, um, I know that the John Marshall House is actually having their own, um, just a standalone ghost tour. I think this next weekend. Yeah, and is going to be there Thursday, Saturday, I believe, this Saturday.